Okay, so hello and welcome to Co-Produce Care. Today we are joined by John Browder. John is the former Chief Executive of North East London Foundation Trust, also known as NELFT, and now he is a Specialist Advisor for NHS London. So without further ado, um, welcome John. Thank you, Sophie. Thank you for coming for an interview with Co-Produce Care. My pleasure. Um, so I thought one of the first things we do with people is just to introduce yourself um, and what you do, but also it's quite interesting to understand the journey of how you got into health um, and also how you got from where you were, where you started, to being chief executive. Okay, well, that's not a big break. <laughs> that's, quite, that's, quite, that's quite a big one, but can you break it down? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, well, I'll, I'll kind of try. Um, so how did I get into health? Well... I think it was a kind of an accident, really. Mm. You know, I knew people that worked in health, didn't know what I wanted to do. I was kind of interested in social policy, but didn't pursue it terribly far. Um, but eventually um, took a notion from, you know, with advice and support from various people to look at psychiatric nursing, and I applied. Mm. And I, I guess in truth, I didn't really know what it was all about. And I think when, when people start out with that, they don't. So that was 40 years ago. So you started off as a nurse, <laughs> yes. a psychiatric nurse. Yes. Oh, yeah. right. Where was that? In Somewhere in London? No, it wasn't. It was uh, down on the coast near where I currently live. Oh. It was called Hevingly, South Downs School of Nursing, I think. And there was a, a big psychiatric, psychiatric hospital associated with it. Mm -hmm. So I started out doing that. Um, and then I did a few sort of postgraduate um, programs and, and, and stayed in psychiatry for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. um, and then and I, I did work with social services as well as health. Mm -hmm. um, some work in commissioning, mm -hmm. not just in the kind of provider organisations. Had a tripartite job at one stage in, in Reading. Uh, there was an appointment between a health provider, uh, the health commissioner, and Reading as a unitary authority. Oh, wow. So that was really interesting. Um, I also worked for a, a regulator that is now defunct, in, mm. kind of like a CQC generations ago, called the Health Advisory Service, and that, that was fascinating. But in between all of that, I, I kind of thought, I was really interested in um, anthropology, social justice, kind of social policy, and the social policy thing was there from fairly early on. So, and I was also really interested in economics, especially decision-making around health and public services generally. So um, I ended up doing a, a business degree. Mm. Um, and that created lots of kind of different paths of, of thinking in my mind and led me into a different place. Um, because then I became really interested in how you use public resources, which then got me into some fairly senior leadership roles. Um, and before I was in London, I, I worked out in um, Berkshire. Mm. Uh, and I, even though it was sort of fairly well into my career, I was a, a director of nursing there um, and um, corporate governance as deputy chief exec. So then I went to London to NILFT. Mm. Uh, on a six-month secondment. Oh, and the rest <laughs> 11 years later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there is, is the history. And there, there was some, you know, 
NELFT was a fabulous period. Mm. Um, and, you know, there are a number of notable things that we did there around child and adolescent mental health services. One of the big issues for us was the use of um, technology um, and creating really agile workforce, empowerment uh, of the people that worked in the organisation. So it, it was just a fascinating period. And it was from there that I went on to do my current work. Uh, and you're right, it is as a specialist advisor on diversity and inclusion. And it is pan London. Mm. But very frequently I found found myself in places like Bristol or yeah. Manchester, Kent or so. But we essentially see this role as something that should benefit the all of the NHS nationally or public services rather than just in London. So that yeah, was rather long, wasn't it? I think that was really good. You compressed that down fantastically. Um, so thinking about where to start, but I was actually, when I was reading about some of your successes as a CEO, would you call them CEOs or just chief, chief executives? CEOs. Yeah. Um, of a uh, NHS Foundation Trust was turning a... So you had the CAMS, which is a child and adolescent mental health service, yeah. from inadequate. Yeah. So services get rated by the Care Quality Commission, which yeah. is the regulator, and they get a rating from um, inadequate all the way up to outstanding. And it went from inadequate to outstanding while you were there. Yeah. So I, I think it might be quite interesting to understand how how did how did you do it? And was it you? Was it the team? Was there anything specific? Or? It's never me. <laughs> it's never one person. Yeah. Uh, we had a, a a great team, but it's also interesting to understand what went on, because services in the NHS, especially specialist services, sorry, specialists, <laughs> particularly um, specialist services, tend to be focused around treating people mm. instead of collaborating with, with people and doing things in, in partnership. And, and that service was very traditional. So it was an inpatient service primarily for kids mm. um, that would have all sorts of illness, you know, fairly psychotic illness, uh, behavioural disorders, anorexia, some fairly serious stuff. Mm. Um, but essentially it was an inpatient service. But it was interesting too because at the time we were trying to physically restore and renovate the establishment to bring it up to a better standard because the fabric yeah. in itself was, was really poor. And the CQC came, came along and, and had a look and, and they rated it inadequate. But that was probably a big opportunity. So we took the opportunity to close it. Okay. Now, what was fascinating, I think we had about 18 young people in there at the time. And we'd always had this notion that wouldn't it make sense to do for young people what we do for adults, mm. i.e. provide a home treatment system. Mm. It's kind of like, I wonder how many families would think that, or, or individuals would think that the issues that they have in their school, in their family, in their community, can best be dealt with in a hospital bed? Mm. I would guess not many. Yeah. So, so what we decided we would, we would do is we would look at all of these kids that were in the unit, um, and where we thought it was appropriate, we would establish a support mechanism to get them back home and work with them at home and in the community and in their local schools. 
I think we started out with 22, I can't remember the numbers exactly, but 18 of them didn't need a bed elsewhere. So even though they were in a bed, the opportunity to create a different service was there. We took it and it successfully maintained those individuals and they didn't go back in. So we do have a very traditional way of thinking uh, in public services and probably we need to move on because that worked really effectively. So, so then we, we came back and we refurbished the, the whole unit, um, a lot of modernisation, an awful lot of change, a lot of investment in those staff. But what was really important for me was that those staff learned much more about insights into family, community, school, and the interactions that those young people were involved in and what were helpful or not helpful. And they, they, they brought that psychological structure, if you like, back into that unit. So physically refurbished, psychologically really changed, um, and motivated staff team, and a team that we, we invested a lot in terms of training. So 18 months, after the unit was deemed to be inadequate, it was deemed to be outstanding. 18 months. 18 months. I'd love yeah. to know some like research on that, how quickly people go through that change, because that yeah. seems huge. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think it's quite interesting what you say about the whole system around the person, yeah. but looking at it, because like you said, sometimes you think of something like mental health services, being very much like other medical services. Like if you break a leg, you get it fixed, you go home. And it doesn't really matter where you get it fixed, you just need to get it fixed. Mm -hmm. But with mental health, there's a whole system around it. There's a whole like ecosystem of schools, of families. And you hear these stories on the news where people are sent miles away from their family. And it just all breaks down. So to Mm -hmm. think of a service that's saying, well, actually, we're going to reach out to the community and then look at the whole person like that. It's, it's, um, It's something that I haven't heard of very much. But do you think that, there's a resource issue in that because that presumably would set off alarm bells in my head thinking, well, that's got to be extra resource for someone to go out to the community to make join the dots and then come back and report back and have a very holistic care plan. You know, is that, yeah. <laughs> do you need extra money to go from inadequate to outstanding or is it just a culture change? No, I, it's, it's not about money. It's about a mindset and, and it's about an intervention but importantly, in, an interpretation of what is important in someone's life. Mm-hmm. It's actually cheaper to support people with a home treatment model than an inpatient model, yeah. whether that's physical health. I mean, a lot, of, um, a lot of our physical health services, we were able to support a significantly larger number of people by creating sort of home or community support than hospital beds because they're really expensive. So I don't think it's a question of economics, um, but having treating someone at home has all sorts of implications for those other elements of, of service. So, you know, you have to say that where people live, their family, their friends, their network, their school, all of those sort of things, they're really important. And, and that's where problems originate from. So getting them into hospital as a way of solving them doesn't make sense because it takes them away. So I think, you know, that sort of home treatment model is much more likely to be successful much more quickly. And one of the important things in there is, I think we learn a lot of kind of dysfunctional coping behavior 
when we're in a unit with lots of other people. Right. So for that reason, it, it wouldn't be desirable. But I think the economics of a different, more innovative model that, that treats people in, in, in their real lives rather than in, in hospital is, is really, I think it's a positive model. I don't think it costs more at all. Yeah. One of the things that I sometimes think about, this is for adult services, because I've worked really with people, adults, mm. is these institutions that we have at the moment are they fit for purpose i mean you obviously had to change the fabric of the building but there's so many stories that you hear in the press of negative feedback from families from people who've had experiences in there are they i mean should we just be moving to a different system which is more community-based anyway um is there any point in having units like that I think there will always be a need for some of that top-end stuff. Mm -hmm. and, and, and in essence, the answer to your, to your question is, there's a lot of really good stuff out there. There's some really great world-class stuff out there. But there's some really poor fabric as well mm -hmm. in public services. But it's interesting you ask the question, in, in terms of should we be moving into that arena? If you look at the long-term plan, for the NHS, the ideology is very clear. Uh, and it, it talks about us as citizens uh, and, and, and the NHS supporting us as citizens to take back increasingly more of the responsibility for our own health and social care. Mm -hmm. And clearly, you know, the model that we have at the moment with so much really expensive hospital care is really difficult to sustain and that is expensive. So I think that ideology will inevitably see more services moving towards supporting people in their own homes and their communities. And that's probably, in my mind, a, a better option anyway. Mm, brilliant, thank you for that. Um, so one of the things I was gonna, reading about you was in March this year, the Health Service Journal, uh, which is a professional journal, they have a ranking of CEOs in health out of 50, you came seventh. Um, and I did look and they said, uh, there was an article, it said the criteria is about leadership style and personal example and uh, contribution to the wider health system. So you're obviously seventh on the list for all of that stuff. Um, I mean, I think it's it, obviously it's, you're doing some great stuff. Is there anything in particular that you feel that either your teams have achieved that has been really impressive that you're really proud of? There, there are probably half a dozen. Mm. You know, um, agile working is, is 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 major. I think our work on workforce raise equality is well outstanding. Chief for me is the issue of culture. Now it's interesting that. The HSJ do their ranking. It's probably quite subjective. So they, they kind of look at the top 50 rated chief execs, but there's a lot of variation and difference in there and, and lots of different organisations. For me, in, in, so when you look at patient experience, I always felt that the patient experience is reflected from staff experience. Um, and our staff survey uh, results at uh, NELF were always in the upper... Well, once we started working on culture, we're in the upper quartile nationally. And my sense always was, if our staff have a really good experience, I don't have to worry about the patient experience. And the one thing I'm really focused on over a long period of time 
was the culture of the organisation, bearing in mind I was there for more than 10 years. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I would never miss induction. So people coming into the organisation, we probably had 120, 100, 120 people coming in every month, but I will always attend that staff induction as a chief exec so that everybody knew who I was and they knew exactly what to expect from me. Uh, and we really set out to generate a culture that was inclusive, that valued diversity, and recognised that every single individual that came to the organisation brought a unique gift. And, and those differences are something that we celebrated. And, and you know, I was very clear about intolerance of racism and about bullying in the organisation and really set down the boundaries and constantly reinforced that because I wanted everyone to feel that they were valued in the organisation. And it was interesting then when the workforce race equality standards were published. NELFT was way ahead of the game and, and of course maintained that position and improved every year uh, since then on, on, on improving that position. And, and, and NELFT was clearly the best in the country, uh, not just the best in London. And for me that was the biggie. I think if we can create a culture where people genuinely value each other um, and, 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 and work in a way that demonstrates that consistently, if we achieve that cultural change, then it's almost nothing is impossible in those circumstances. That's very positive. I like that positive spin. Um, so the first time I met you, it was earlier this year at the Workforce Diversity event. Um, held by Healthy London Partnerships and you talked there, you had you were one of the um, headline speakers and you talked about some of the excesses, uh, successes even that you've had in terms of promoting diversity and inclusion, you just uh, touched on it there with the res. Um, I don't know, I know some of it from the talk but I think mm. it would be nice to go into a bit more detail about what you did and why um, NELF was so high up on that rating. Um, but maybe start off with explaining what the workforce race and equality standard actually is for anyone who yeah. doesn't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to do that, of course. So we have a, a problem in the NHS, um, and it's not new. I mean, we've seen publications, objective research, snowy white peaks go back, goes back years, a whole generation. And the reality is... Uh, if you're black, if you're from a BME community, your experience in the NHS will be much worse than your white counterpart. You're unlikely, much less likely to get a job in the first place. You will be much more less likely than white counterparts to advance, much less likely to get into a senior post, increasingly more likely that you will be involved in formal disciplinary processes um, and significantly less likely than your white counterparts to be offered training and development opportunities. You know, and, and when you look at that collectively, particularly, you know, this isn't new, this is old stuff. When you look at that, you just say, this is just completely unjust. It is unacceptable in this day and age that we should find ourselves in those circumstances. And I was, I was at um, a conference where I was on a, a panel with a Professor uh, David Williams from Harvard, a renowned local researcher. It is shocking 
how that black and white difference is played out around the world in economics, opportunity, experience, life expectancy. You know, it is an appalling situation. So, so about four or five years ago, the NHS started working with something called workforce race equality standards. And those standards then begin to measure the experience of BME staff particularly in the NHS and the experiences that they're subject to. Um, and just this year we, we've started um, applying some performance standards to that. So they are measured nationally, organisations know how they perform. But one of the big issues was BME populations tend to um, sit around band five and six. I, they're, they're qualified essentially mostly qualified people but low bandings so how many bands are there because i don't well you can go up to 9a b i think so okay. and then beyond that you've got very senior management and each of those bands have probably got three or or four sub bands oh, within right. them so you know this is a really serious issue mm -hmm. uh, and as you go up those bandings the higher you get the smaller number of bme stars and, it, and when you look at board members, chief execs, chairs, and so on, really senior people um, in, in organisations, the numbers of people that, again, come from BME backgrounds, infinitesimally small. Mm. You know, it, it really is completely at odds with what you would expect. And we expect our organisations, uh, employed population, to reflect the populations that they serve. When you look at it in London, you know, you could have up to 60, 70% of the people in, in any borough uh, could be BME. And, and yet you get a complete immersion of that where all the leaders appear to be white. Mm -hmm. So we do, we do have a really big issue that we need to combat. And, and you know, I always say, you kind of get lost for words, really, because it is just a fundamental social injustice. Mm -hmm. That was a really helpful explanation of what the Workforce Race and Equality Standard is. Um, so we might just refer to it as RES now, because I think that's how most people know it. Um, so you, NELFT, while you were there, was known for doing some great things around um, equality and yeah. diversity. Could you talk a little bit about some of the great things that you did? Because um, you explained to me earlier that you actually started your work earlier. Uh, it'd be interesting to know what made you think, right, this is something we need to do. But also the, the scale of NELF, you know, how big is the North East London Foundation Trust and what is it that might be helpful mm. for people to understand first? That's quite a helpful question, actually, because I think those two things are related. Okay. Um, so, so if we just talk about the organisation and its complexity. So NELF covers a number of boroughs in the east of London, but it also has services that cover the whole geography of the county of Essex and Kent. Mm -hmm. Bearing in mind, I'm no longer there, so I, I must remember that mm -hmm. in, in my head. So, so the organisation operates over in excess of 200 different sites. And there would certainly be more than 6,000 people on the ground every day. So if you've got over 200 sites with all of those people, then there is a sense that we have to think differently about how we communicate effectively and engage with those people. So part of what was driving me was thinking, 
Well, how is this going to work? How are we going to have effective systems of communication, motivation, engagement, and a real sense of ownership for those people? There's a sense that if you work for a huge organisation, and I believe this as a fundamental, if you work for a huge organisation and you don't have a mechanism that allows you to really believe and experience your ability to influence the shape and movement of that organisation, then it won't work for you mm. psychologically. And just so I can understand, what kind of sites were they? Hospitals? And... Hospitals, um, community treatment centres, urgent care centres, okay. uh, psychiatric clinics, you know, a whole array of, of health services. And that's the, uh, the kind of um, notion of the Foundation Trust, they kind of bring it all together. A Foundation Trust can bring all sorts of business together and, and, and you can acquire all sorts of, in what was once a competitive market. Okay. So it probably had, on balance, more physical health care, but it certainly started out as a smaller organisation just doing mental health. Okay. So the whole spectrum of stuff, and from you know services to very young people to very old people. So, so part of that, um, part of the ambition was to clearly understand what would work for our staff, to really engage our staff and listen to them. And some of the stuff that, that came out of the exercises that we engaged in in order to understand what mattered to people were hints about differences and certainly BME, uh, about physical health, about mental health, a history of lots of different pieces of other organisations, how do you bring all that together? And, and the motivation for us as an organisation was to be able to really engage with those people and effectively communicate with them and maintain a dialogue across massive geography and, mm -hmm. and hundreds of different sites. And, and then it inevitably got into, well, how do you build a really positive culture Mm. that people value, that they feel they have an investment in uh, and, and feel that it works for them. And inevitably, out of that came a lot of issues around race because that characterises so much of certainly public services in this country. Um, so in very practical terms, some of the things that we did was set up a BME network. The chair of the network then automatically became a member of the board not, not a voting member, but we wanted to be absolutely clear um, that minority groups had a voice at the board. Um, and then we did lots of things like um, train people from BME backgrounds to sit on interview panels. Because, as I said earlier, if you're from a BME community, you're applying for a job, you're much less likely to get that job than your white counterpart. So having that presence there was really important. Um, establishing a whole network of... Um, people that worked for that BME network uh, and worked out across the organisation, um, creating targeted mentored situations for people from BME community so that someone senior could support them to develop and think about their career. One of the most profoundly touching things for me that, that really made a difference to me uh, was having a reverse mentor. So I had... Um, a girl who who was who was um, a nurse, quite young, sort of band five um, nurse, who was black, who was my reverse mentor. Mm. So I had to be mentored by her. It was hugely powerful. It's one of the most probably distressing, emotionally distressing things I've 
I've ever done. Um, and that's probably why it was so effective, because you get to listen to what life is like on a day-to-day -day basis. And I, if we had longer, I could probably tell you one of the most meaningful experiences that I had with her. But yeah, that was really powerful. Some of the other things that we did was clearly targeting um, development education programs. Uh, for people from um, different backgrounds, but particularly BME. So as we're just thinking across the board, how can we really empower people that historically appear not to have been empowered so that we achieve a more uh, level playing field for everyone yeah. in the organisation? And it, it was really effective. When the Workforce Race Equality Standards eventually were published, that organisation was way ahead and maintain that position over this last four or five years. Yeah, that's um, that was a really good... Uh, it was brilliant. You listed all the things you did, and I think people can take away a lot from that. Some of them. Some, Some of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm really interested in the story now you mentioned it. Do you want to talk about it, or is it just too long? And No, I can do it very okay. briefly. Um, and it, reverse mentoring is really interesting, because mm. it's too easy for me to adopt what my role was, chief exec, and for, I'll tell you her name, it was Penny, mm -hmm. that's her real name, and I'm, she doesn't mind me sharing this story, uh, as opposed to Penny being in charge and me having to listen to it, but yeah. it, it, was, it was a hugely um, productive relationship. And the story that she told me which would just never enter my head, because it's just a million miles away from the kind of you know, privileged white position that effectively I operate. So, so Penny was a band five nurse, worked on an inpatient ward, and a young man was admitted, and Penny became the care manager. Um, and at the time, I think this young man's family were away, out of the country, on holiday. So Penny established um, a relationship with them over the telephone and she maintained communication so that they were up to speed uh, with what was going on. Um, and by the time they returned from leave, she she had established a real rapport and said, you know, they, they, they had some really great and warm and friendly conversations over the phone. Um, and after a period of time, the family came to visit their son on the unit. Um, and they came in and Penny went out to meet them and they said, hello, we've come to see Penny. And Penny said, yes, I'm Penny. And their faces dropped. And the relationship went sour. Really? Do you know why? Because she's black. And that, that was just such a shocking mm. moment. Mm. And she's a real East End girl. So, you know, if you heard her... Uh, well, I, East End of London, <laughs> it, when you hear her, I can understand why they might have thought, you know, uh, something different. Mm. But for them to behave in that way, and then the relationship became really difficult. Yeah. You know, it's hugely yeah. moving. Yeah. And, and some of that coming out of a relationship which I would otherwise never be involved in as a reverse mentor. So it's so powerful but it's a horrible thing which just never occurred to me yeah i think it's those stories and those experiences and hearing them firsthand because i think if someone almost tells you second or third hand you might not believe it or you might not really understand the effects of it but there's so much going on there you've got you know the perception that they had and you've got the effect on penny then you've got the effect on the person she was looking after because the relationship has turned sour um, and how what did that do to her confidence there's so many knock-on effects 
just from that and there's just so much it just makes you really understand how much work there is to do um, I'm, I'm a big fan of reverse mentoring and it's good to hear that experience that you had because having I think sometimes in health we try to separate the person from the system of the process but when you put it all together then you can really feel the effect of these things so that's really really powerful um, are you still in touch with Penny? On Twitter occasionally we message um, back and forth. Uh, yes, I have been, and I, I saw her last week actually okay. at a, a conference. And it, it's really interesting because she is someone that is so full of energy, and and someone that really wants to make a difference. And and it is remarkable that she still continues in that way because I shared one story, but you know for her they happen all the time. And you would think they would have that kind of cumulative effect and weigh her down. So, you know, part of my sense of that is, if you're from a BME background, how much more resilient than your white counterpart do you have to be in order to be successful? You know, it just adds to that profound sense of injustice yeah. that there is. Uh, around all of this. And in terms of the people that you've supported to either come up through mentoring or anything, do you, have you had any feedback from people to say this specific um, intervention that happened, whether well, it was the network or anything else, that really helped me in order to find my way or understand what I needed to do or um, support my progression or anything like that? I mean, there have been some fantastic stories and, and one that just stands out in my mind because um, there, there is someone, I, I won't name her because I, uh, you know, because I hadn't asked her permission to do it, but she came to a conference because I returned to a, a conference at NELF just last week, it was their annual uh, BME conference, fabulous event and, and so much noise and energy and she's someone that used to work there and and she came back and she did sort of 20 minutes on the stage. And one of the most, almost scarily inspiring women you could possibly come across. And, you know, a lot of it she relates back uh, to her experience at Melt. And you create the right environment uh, for people to believe in, they will thrive in. Um, and, and this particular person I'm, I'm speaking about, she's hardly alone. You know, there are, there are four or five people uh, they're hugely powerful now uh, when they present on the stage, all of whom uh, have come from North, male uh, and female, you know, kind of mix of people. That's, that's yeah. kind of rewarding, it's really. It's it is. It, it, it gives us hope, that. I think. It's great. Um, in, so if you have other CEOs who might be looking at this, chief executives working in the NHS, is there any one thing that you would advise, piece of advice you'd give them to help? inclusion and diversity in the NHS? Well, the job I, I have at the moment is to work with all of the oh. chief execs and chairs in London on just that, on, on diversity and inclusion. And the one thing that I'm saying to everyone is don't work on res because it's targets. Mm -hmm. Work on the culture of the organisation because if you really work hard, on the fundamental culture of the organisation so that you generate a genuine sense of valuing diversity and the unique gifts that individuals bring to the organisation and you facilitate 
that change, mm. then you get it. You create a situation and a culture when you put those red sta res standards in, they will thrive. If you put res standards and the initiatives associated with that into a poor, negative, dysfunctional culture, they will not be sustained. Mm. Never mind, thrive. So my my message all the time is back to basic culture. And interestingly, some of the best examples that I've seen from organisations thus far in my journey around London has been about that. They decided they clearly needed to invest in the basic culture of the organisation. Yeah, and the thing is, the only thing I find with culture, it's such a big word. I mean, what does it mean and how do you change it? Which is a deeper conversation, I suppose. But one of the things that um, I went to a talk at the NHS Confed in, in Manchester uh, a few months ago, and I heard from, you mentioned before, Professor David Williams. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And yeah. he was fantastic um, and almost brought me to tears, just given the bare facts of the inequality, whether it's in society and then in health and what the effects that have that has. One of the things he said was psychological safety, he talked about. Yeah. And um, he's, he was just saying, you know, if people have psychological uh, safety in their workplace, then they're able to um, really have the confidence to speak up. So they know if there's a problem, if there's safeguarding issues, then they will be able to uh, respond to that in a safe way, knowing that they're not going to have reprisals from that, they're not going to be disciplined because of it or have you know, a very negative culture because they've spoken up about something. So do you feel in terms of, you know, what you need to look at in terms of culture and changing culture is creating that, that safety for people to speak out? Absolutely. It, it's absolutely key. Mm. And again, I, I always go back to, we have to create a structure uh, in an organisation. The structure is essentially people mm. that will not just tolerate that, but encourage it. Mm. So, so some of my messages, again, at induction, will be, you know, we have national speak-up guardians, for example. Uh, I would encourage you, uh, when you see something wrong or something isn't okay, that you speak out about it. Because what we have to develop uh, in order to be a successful organisation is a positive culture. So if I set down the boundaries at the outset and said, if there is any racism, I want to hear about mm. it. If there's any bullying, I want to hear about it because there can be no place for any of that in this organisation. Mm. So I set down the boundaries and then we expect the system to keep reinforcing those boundaries. So we use social media, for example, in constant communication to keep those messages going out so that we are reinforcing that position so people heard it the first day they came to the organisation from the chief executive and the senior team and they keep hearing these messages. We also, I think one of the other things that's really important is having a set of values that are simple, that people understand, that are explicit everywhere. So that instead of, for example, me challenging you personally about a piece of behaviour, 
I can ask you, you know, how is what you said or what you just did consistent with our values? Because they're writ large on the wall mm. everywhere you go. And, and I think having mechanisms or instruments like that and talking about the values on a frequent basis and constantly reinforcing, it's not a task. It's a process that must go on and on and on. And then people begin after a while to think, hmm, this is genuine. And it's real. And they do stand up. And they do speak out. Mm -hmm. And then there's the next generation of change. So what happens when someone does? And we have to very publicly be clear about what we do, the actions that we take, how we you know, communicate the outcome of that, but make it explicit. And make that person feel they were right. And if you have an open culture, you get a lot of reporting of incidents. You get a lot of uh, speak-up issues mm. being reported. Now, it's interesting. I, I think an open, high-reporting organisation probably has a good culture mm. where that's encouraged. But very often, then, you get to a regulator who thinks, well, there are a lot of incidents here. There are a lot of... Well, <laughs> so that's a challenge. Yeah. OK, so you talked a bit about culture. You talked a lot about culture. It was very useful. Um, sometimes the challenges with making such a cultural shift are not always compatible with what we have to do in terms of delivering and maybe um, with what the regulator expects from us. So your example with the safeguarding, if you've got a lot of safeguardings and that automatically triggers a potentially negative response and then you have to explain why and that actually it's a positive thing because people are reporting more. Do you find those kind of issues coming up? Hugely. Mm. <laughs> Hugely. Yeah. Well, so, my interpretation of, of what you described could be a poor culture in, in which there are lots of genuine safeguarding issues. But it might be that you've got a really enthusiastic team that are very open about what they're doing and are, and are constantly looking for um, some of the risks that we would, we know we would want to manage down. I mean, it's not dissimilar when I, when I think about my discussions historically with the CQC. Um, and one of the things that used to come up really regularly was, well, you've got a very high number of incidents compared to, um, you know, your benchmarking organisations. And I would say, yes, because I encourage a really open culture. Mm. And I want people to report, because every time we report an error and we analyse it, it's an opportunity to learn. Mm. And if you have a safe culture in which you really do encourage everyone to report things, and they don't fear reprisals or recrimination because they know that we're using root cause analysis that we want to learn from, then they'll report. And their confidence grows and they report more. So rather than a bad thing, for me, the sense is, that's a really good thing. And it's very similar on the, on the whole issue of, of race and... and um, uh, national speak up guardian roles and things because that's another area where you know I've heard the CQC say well you've got all these issues and my answer to that would be yes because we've invested a lot of money mm. in the national speak up guardian structure and I encourage people to go and talk to them if they don't feel confident about using other routes in the organization but at the same time that seemed rather negatively so I think there is often an issue around regulation um, and the way that it's managed. 
Um, and the difference is that we create in organisations through the development of positive culture. So we need to think in the future about how do we bring these two together and not create a situation where we're afraid of the product of positive cultural development because it may be used punitively by a commissioner or a regulator or, 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 or a third party body. I think that's really interesting, the thought of the actual institutions themselves having to change the way that they think and the way that they do and it's like a, almost like a structural issue because I think sometimes the rhetoric is very much around well um, you know as a someone who's non-white you have to fit into a certain mold or you have to mm. change the way you speak or the way you interact or your qualifications but looking at it in terms of, well, how are the structures actually not learning from the massive talent that we have as is and, and making that change? And, you know, the idea of reverse mentoring that you talked about, I think that's really interesting rather than thinking, well, I'm the mentor who's made it, so you need to learn from me because I do it best, rather than thinking, actually, learning is bottom-up, top-down, all directions sort of thing. So I think that's a really important uh, insight. So thank you for that. Um, so we've come on to the section where we talk about prickly questions. Ooh. So this is our cactus questions. So this is anyone ah. who doesn't write. This is where the cactus, this is why we have a cactus specifically yeah. on the table. So anyone who doesn't know about our cactus questions, these are particularly prickly questions that we asked about health and social care. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm going to shoot away with the first one. Uh, so you've had a great career in the NHS. Um, and you've obviously come through uh, to a very high level and you've had some great successes. One of the criticisms around the lack of diversity within the NHS is that there are too many per personalities who are the same um, within the leadership positions and too many white faces. Do you feel with you being in your position or as you were as a CEO, you were part of the problem? Of course, yeah, and I, you know, I made reference earlier to snowy white peaks, yeah, and and I and I think for most white males, because that's where we are as leaders in the NHS, they get they get very prickly when I talk about um, our position and the elitism um, and the, and the position of privilege, because I think I mean what's called unconscious bias, I just call it tribalism, because it's that simplistic, really. yeah. it's the tribe that we feel we belong to. So when I'm making decisions for whatever reason, I always have to think, what was my dis decision instinctively? Because that may well have happened out of my instinctive tribal allegiance. So somehow I have to intellectualise that, so before I articulate, my decision, I need to think about it and think, is it the right decision or is it a tribal decision? Because we're all tribal in some way. Uh, and, and begin to effect, affect a change in that decision-making process. I mean, in excess, I suppose, I would, I would say, if you interpret the Snowy White Peaks as, as uh, and, I, and I mean in, in, in excess, you, you would say, well, that, that's a very arrogant sentiment that says white is right. But it has nothing to do with compassionate leadership. 
um, and I often encounter situations where the, the, the arrogance of, of history is the construct around the, the way that responses are given to criticism, often from staff. And that has to change dramatically, because it has to be a compassionate one that says, it's not about me and the leadership, it's learning from the people uh, that are coming in, that are doing the work at the bottom of the organisation, and not insisting the institution is right. The institution has to change in accordance with the consumer requirement. Mm. So that's about the patient and the clinicians or professionals' interaction. An organisation should be structured around optimising that, not around what organisations think is right. Yeah. And what do you think about, some people talk about positive discrimination or um, having people being more favourable to people who are non-white because they have dealt with so many different um, issues uh, that white people wouldn't necessarily have to deal with. Uh, Recognising that and giving them extra opportunities and uh, you know extra mentoring support to reach uh, higher management. Do you think that's a something that should happen more? Of Absolutely. And, and if you think about it, so if you have targeted mentoring programs, training programs, a lot of people will say, well, why are you doing it for all these black? What about us white people? And, and then I, you know, my response to that is, you know what, the objective evidence for 30 years or more in the NHS is that we're grossly unfair to people from BME backgrounds, yeah. not to white people, because you have the privilege. And there is a, a demonstrable difference. So we must target, which is uh, a very positive step, I, I think, towards supporting people that we currently do a major disservice to. So uh, I, I think we have to have positive discrimination until we balance the experience of people out there. Yeah. Um, so that report, The Snowy White Peaks, was a report uh, or piece of research done by Roger Klein. So I will put that in the description area of this video for anyone who wants to read more, because I think it's an interesting read. But the next question is, um, you've obviously done a lot of work on diversity and inclusion. What does the end result look like in the NHS? When do you feel that, right, the job is done? Wow. <laughs> I often think about I would not want the next generation of people in the NHS to look back at me in a way that I've been able to look back at the legacy that we were left by previous generation. Um, now that's hugely broad, uh, I understand that, but wouldn't it be great if we didn't need to have something like workforce race equality standards. Wouldn't it be great if we all looked at each other on any given day and just saw an individual and that unique gift that they bring into the service? Mm -hmm. Just see an individual as an individual and, and just not see uh, the social uh, construct yeah. that is race. Um, and in terms of the always the prickly question at the moment is Brexit, around Brexit until anything yeah, passes, yeah. how do you think that might affect the work that you're doing or that you're, the interest that you have in, in diversity and inclusion? It is really big. I mean, I just very quickly, I heard a story from 
one of the acute hospitals around the southern edge of London. I won't say any more about where it was, but on, I think it was a, a Friday night, a, a, a white person, male, who'd been out drinking, who was having his head stitched up for reasons which are probably fairly <laughs> apparent. Um, and uh, as he was having his head stitched up by the nurse, he asked her where she was from. And she's from Eastern Europe. And his response was, I thought you lot were going home. When are you leaving? Mm. And he, so it has a huge effect. So we've even had a situation where you know, at least one organisation has a, established a staff network for Eastern European staff. So on that human level, you know, it could have an enormous effect. I don't think anyone can overestimate the contribution that European people make mm. to uh, NHS. You know, it is really important. But, you know, clearly they are being discouraged. Um, this whole Brexit thing is impacting on the mindset of the country overall. And, and I think, you know, some of those with less insight uh, are reacting to that in a, in a very unhelpful and, and prejudiced way. And I, you know, it, it's a great sadness of modern society that we are seeing that. There'll be all sorts of you know, potential product impacts, economic uh, security issues going forward uh, for, for the NHS. It's almost too big to think yeah, about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's interesting you should say, talk about mindset. Um, and also, I think you're like the third or fourth person we've asked on this question and nobody's said anything positive, which is interesting. But it's... Uh, and people talk about you know the physical stuff about getting medication in or any other issues, but the mindset, the effect it's having on people mm. even before it's happened, yeah, yeah. Um, that's an an interesting observation. Okay, so we're coming to the end, and uh, one of the things I thought would be interesting to ask you was obviously you've done some very interesting work and you've talked about it extensively, and really appreciate that. But for people who are wanting to improve diversity and inclusion or the experiences of people within their organisation, uh, especially people in a leadership position, is there um, a book or, or a text uh, that you would recommend that they, they read? There, there, are, there are probably lots of choices. So, um, you know, I, I think about oppression and extremes of behaviour. Mm. Um, and I think about Solzhenitsyn and a, and a, a day in the life of Ivan Denisovich, and it's you know, such a long way back, but is it terribly different to the way that people are being treated now? And you know, that, that was the oppression uh, that was characterising Russia for, okay. for people in the West. But more recently, uh, I think about, you know, why am I no longer talking to white people about race? I think, you know, that, I can't remember uh, the author's name, but you know, it is a compelling piece of reading uh, and something I think, you know, everyone that has some responsibility, that is why in public services should read. Yeah. Because it really conveys not just a sense of, the experience of, of people from uh, from different cultures, but the whole issue of legal and social policy and the way things are going through. And, and you know, the final element of that was uh, her saying, um, if you feel deeply or impacted 
from what you've read here, you are part of a movement. And I think that is so important mm. for the NHS and public services going forward. I think things are changing. And I would love to think that there was a real movement and the work that I'm doing uh, at the moment is likely to be more positively received than it would have been, you know, even 10 years ago. That's really useful. And we will put both of those books um, in the description of uh, this video. So thank you for sharing that with us. It's been my pleasure. Um, so we're pretty much at the end now, but for anyone who has been watching this video or listening to it and they want to find out more about what you're doing, um, how can they keep track of you? Maybe you've got a Twitter account or a blog or, or somewhere that you write. Yeah, I haven't done any blogging mm -hmm. uh, thus far. Um, and you know, old people are not really good at modern technology, but I do have a Twitter account. Uh, but don't ask me what it's called. That's fine. We'll put, it all in, we'll put it all in the description box. That's where people can follow up. So that's fine. Thank you so much, John, for joining us. It's been not an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much.